Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer joining you uh, this week for week, I believe it's 19, the week of May 8th through 14th as we're reading uh, now in the uh, book of Acts, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, I'm so glad you're joining us uh, here as we continue thinking about God's Word, reading through it, studying it, um, and thinking about it, reflecting upon it. So last week we, we opened up with, um, well, we did John, we wrapped up John, and then last week would have been uh, the first week that we would have read in the book of Acts, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, right, um, that's written by Luke. And so we talked about how this week we're going to kind of really introduce it, talk about it, um, and that's what we want to do. So let's talk about Acts. Um, so we finished with the Gospels. We finished with um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and now we move to a book that has a unique place in the New Testament. There are four Gospels, but there's only one book of Acts, and the book of Acts is really um, showing us the uh, development, the story of the early church, and the spread of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ um, outside the boundaries of Israel outside of Jerusalem um, to the ends of the earth. Um, and so that's really what this whole book is about. And as we've talked about before, the, the book of Acts, a few quick facts um, that you, you might be interested to learn. This is written, of course, by uh, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, which is the first volume of a two-volume work, Luke, the first part, and Acts, the second part. And Luke, you'll remember, is... Uh, a well-educated guy. Um, he's a friend of Paul's, a companion, a co-worker of, with Paul. And he is, though he's not an eyewitness of Christ's earthly ministry, remember, he he didn't see Jesus with his eyes. He, um, he wasn't around then. He was a participant in certain sections of the book of Acts. And sometimes in Acts, you'll notice eventually that the writer of Acts, Luke, switches to using the the pronoun we instead of uh, saying Paul did this or he did this or they did this. He'll say we did this or this is what we did or whatever. And this is a clue to tell us that Luke was involved um, participated in certain things here that went on um, in in the gospel or in the book of Acts. And he's probably here writing this book, the book of Acts from Rome. Um, we know that eventually Luke is with uh, Paul in Rome. And uh, so he's probably writing from Rome. Um, and the, the book ends in Rome, doesn't it? The book of Acts chapter 28 ends in Rome and uh, stops uh, right there um, in the in the midst of a story, it seems. It doesn't really seem to finish in some ways. Uh, but Luke is probably there, right there with Paul, um, writing from Rome. He's probably writing this book in the early 60s before Paul's execution. So the book of Acts ends, and Paul is in, uh, you know, he's arrested, he's in confinement, he's imprisoned by the Romans. And it seems probably that Paul eventually was let loose from the imprisonment that is described 
in Acts 28, um, probably does more ministering and preaching before eventually he will later on be executed under Nero, um, the emperor, Roman emperor Nero, uh, later on in the 60s. So Luke is probably writing this in the early 60s, which is still very close. Um, if you think that Jesus probably died in the 30s AD, so this is within 30 years or so of the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And so that's the how close it is. Um, if you think about that today, that would be like somebody um, recording events. Uh, we're talking about the, uh, the progress of something from the year 1992 till now. Um, and if, it's kind of funny. You look back and you realize, wow, that's actually quite close. Um, the year, if you, 1992 is 30 years ago from today. And uh, similarly here, um, that would have been roughly the time for, for Luke. He's writing this, of course, as he wrote the first, uh, his gospel to a guy named Theophilus, who, uh, to remind ourselves, this is probably a guy of high rank who knows something about Christianity, but Luke is wanting to um, tell him and to remind him that what he's heard um, is factually true, to reassure him and to defend uh, the claims of, of Christianity and the spread of Christianity, uh, trying to give a defense and uh, to show um, what happened, how it all happened and everything. Because remember, the, the great uh, question here is, is why should we Gentiles, people who are non-Jews, why should we follow a guy that the Jews themselves rejected? Why should Jesus, a Jewish man, rejected by Jews, claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, why should that man become the Lord, God, and Savior of non-Jews? And some Jews as well, but some Jew, many Jews reject him and some Jews believe in this guy. But why should we Gentiles do that? Um, what's our place on our relationship to this Jewish Messiah? And uh, so here as you think about it, uh, the one New Testament um, uh, introduction book says this, that the purpose of the book was a defense of the Christian faith, showing the expansion of the early church from a Jewish sect to a worldwide movement. And that really is the story of Christianity, isn't it? How this Jewish sect, these this group of Jewish disciples who claimed that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who had been crucified, had risen again on the third day and ascended and poured out the Spirit, it is the claim that this Jesus is at work and is saving Jews and Gentiles. And how did this religion, this conviction spread from outside of Jerusalem to eventually go all the way to Rome and Greece. And um, we'll read, a, you know, and we, we know that it went to Egypt later and, and, and it goes all over everywhere to Antioch, uh, to, to all sorts of people who begin to believe in this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. That's a fascinating story. And the book of Acts is telling us how this happened and, and why it's important. And you could imagine early readers of this book really wanting to grasp why this is um, and, and what's going on here. So an outline of Acts, as we think about the book of Acts, how can we divide it up? Well, kind of playing off of the verse 8 of chapter 1, um, it says here, this is when Jesus is about ready to be taken up 
right? He, uh, the, the book of Acts opens up with the resurrection, as you read last week. Um, there's some overlap between the resurrection and ascension at the end of Luke's gospel and the beginning of the book of Acts. And in verse 8, it says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So he's saying that um, you will be witnesses, notice, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. There's kind of three big divisions there. First of all, Jerusalem. So we have the spread of the gospel and the establishment of the church, the New Testament church in Jerusalem. We see that in chapters 1 all the way through chapter 6, verse 7. That's really the, the, the Christian faith, the gospel taking hold and putting down roots in Jerusalem. But then the gospel spreads outside of Jerusalem, particularly through the uh, martyrdom of Stephen and uh, Saul of Tarsus, this guy. He thinks he's going to try to um, ravage the church, and, and there's a great persecution that happens. Well, actually, all it does is spread the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And so it goes to Judea and to Samaria. So in six chapter 6, verse 8, all the way through chapter 9, verse 31, we have the spread of the gospel to Judea and Samaria. So it began in Jerusalem, um, then goes to Judea and Samaria, and then from chapter 9, verse 32, all the way to the end of the book, it's the story of the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we have Paul, he has uh, three missionary journeys we read about. Uh, It opens up this section with Peter, um, with his um, preaching to the first Gentile convert, and the first Gentile converts come in. Um, We see the Jerusalem council that takes place in chapter 15, where the big question is dealing again with this Jew-Gentile thing is, if all of these Gentiles are believing in Jesus, does that mean they need to keep the law in order to be saved? And the Jerusalem Council says, no, they do not. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that anyone, Jew or Gentile, is acceptable and made right in the sight of God. Only through faith alone in Jesus Christ as having come from God the Father to be received by faith. Eventually, so we have Paul's three missionary journeys, and then in chapter 21, verses 17, all the way to the end of the book, we see Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, we see his trial, and eventually we see his trip to Rome, where he ends up in chapter 28. So, throughout this this book, we see the gospel spreading, Jesus Christ actively spreading his kingdom through the power of the Spirit, in Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, that's what we have here. Now, as we think about the initial, what we're reading this week, well, last week we read uh, Acts chapter 1, where the, the apostles there, Jesus ascends, his ascension going back up, and the disciples are here in Jerusalem, told to wait for the Spirit. They do choose a replacement for Judas to come and to bear witness. 
uh, to the gospel truth. And so there we have uh, chapter one there. We have the gift of the Spirit poured out at Pentecost in chapter two. Um, In chapter three, it opens up with the healing of a lame man. And then we see the response, uh, the, the, the apostles preaching. We see their persecution that happens by the religious leaders. They begin to to persecute them, just like Jesus said it would happen, right? Remember that? He told them, they're going to persecute you. You're going to suffer because whenever I, whenever uh, you bear witness to the truth of these things. But notice God continues to work even through their suffering. We read about their prayer for boldness at the cha- in, in chapter 4, but also the great love they had. Um, the church in Jerusalem is described... Um, in, in chapter 4, verse 32, all the way through chapter 6, verse 7. And we kind of see a pictures, don't we, of the early church. We see their unity, which was expressed in the sharing, that they shared all things, they had all things in common. And uh, we see uh, Barnabas uh, come onto the scene. We see also judgment, though. There was sin in the early church, just as there's always been sin, right? It's fascinating. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we see Ananias and Sapphira trying to deceive the church uh, and um, and trying to make it look like they are more generous than they are. Um, and uh, they, are, they are slain in judgment by the Holy Spirit, by God. Um, and so they are uh, removed. There's also growth that takes place, right? Uh, in chapter 5, verses uh, 12 through 17, there's great signs that are done. People are coming around. There's great people are seeing this. There's also persecution that takes place in the latter part of chapter 5, right? These disciples, the apostles are arrested. Um, and they are persecuted, and and such and persecution has been part of the church's history, well, since the dawn of time. The Old Testament church and the New Testament church have always faced persecution. And then there's even internal conflict that has to be solved, right? Um, there was uh, these, these uh, complaints going on between the widows and people in the church, and this is where the deacons step in and are appointed uh, by the apostles to um, deal with this problem and to help solve it so that the church can function in a healthy way. And then the last part of chapter 6 that we'll read this week is the beginning of the charges relating to Stephen. Stephen is one of these deacons, and he's preaching, and he's full of the Spirit, and uh, the Jews don't like what he's saying because he's preaching in the synagogues and such. And so we see some of the charges brought against him uh, before next week in our readings. We will look at his sermon that he preaches to uh Uh, these people before his martyrdom, uh, which will eventually be the background for the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So that's kind of a quick overview of Acts. It's an exciting book, and we're going to have a lot of fun in it. Um, So what can we learn from Acts chapters 2 through 6? And we're going to also begin a little earlier as we think about the overall book this week. Uh, looking at where we, what, what I could use to kind of um, base some of our thoughts off of, I found this book. It's, uh, the book is called The Church in the House, and it's a commentary of sorts on Acts. But it was actually written originally, um, it's, it's an old book from the 1800s, but it was not written for pastors, but for actually to be read by families on the Lord's Day, on Sundays. It was written by a guy named uh, William Arnault, or Arnott, I'm not sure which way you pronounce it. He lived from 1808 to 1875. He was a Scottish minister who served in the Church of Scotland before serving in the Free Church of Scotland. And this book 
Uh, the reason I know about this book is because uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, gave it an endorsement. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, gave it a thumbs up and said, um, he said this, he said, all who are acquainted with Dr. Arnaud will know that even his simplest expositions are rich and full. He hath dust of gold. So that is a pretty high praise um, as regarding this commentary. So I found it to be very helpful, and I hope you'll enjoy it as we go through um, the book of Acts. He's, this whole book is, is, a, is covering the book of Acts, and I think it will be a helpful guy, helpful uh, to have along with us as we think about the book of Acts together um, and uh, just meditate upon certain truths that come, come from it. So it's called The Church in the House. You could find it online if you're interested. You type in William Arnault, A-R-N-O-T, uh, The Church in the House, and um, Acts. You could type in the word Acts along with it. And you can bring it up, and you can find it on Google Books or wherever you want um, if, you're, if you're interested in doing that. So this is from William Arnault. As we think about how to transition into uh, the book of Acts, he has this at the very beginning, kind of introducing the book and such, transitioning from Luke's gospel to the book of Acts. And he has this to say. In determining the relation which subsists between the evangelic histories and the book of Acts, it is not enough to observe that while the Gospels contain the history of the Master's own ministry, this book records the labors of the Apostles. Both alike narrate the work of the Lord. The Gospels, what he did in person when he was here. The Acts, what he did by the ministry of his chosen witnesses after he had ascended. This distinction is marked in the first verse. Luke intimates that in the former treatise he had recorded all that Jesus began both to do and teach, implying that the history which he is now about to compose will be occupied with what Jesus continued both to do and teach after he had sat down at the right hand of the Father. The, the distinction is not that the former treatise dealt with what Jesus did and the latter with what was done by the apostles. The distinction is that the former treatise, and by that, by the way, the former treatise, he's referring, he's saying the former book, the, the book of Luke. So he's talking about the former treatise and the present one, the, the book of Luke being the former one and the book of Acts being the, the present one, the latter one. The distinction is that the former treatise, the book of Luke, told what Jesus did in the first place and the latter, the book of Acts, what Jesus did in the second the first part of Christ's work has already in the Gospels been recorded, and now in another treatise, the second part, or the continuance of his work, will be told. His ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension constituted only the beginning or foundation of the Redeemer's work. But after the foundation has been laid, a lofty temple must be reared upon it, and the builder of this temple is Christ the Lord. When he ascended from the Mount of Olives, a way was opened from earth to heaven, but a multitude whom no man can number must be led by it into glory. And none can lead them but himself, the captain of their salvation, the bishop of their souls. This book, then, is the continuation of the life of Jesus by the evangelist Luke. Nor did the Lord's work on earth cease at the date when this history closes. Hitherto the Son worketh and will work till the end. He shall not cease from his work until the kingdoms of this world shall all have all become his own. The working of Christ upon the earth does not cease when the inspired history of it ceases. 
The track of the Redeemer's Way is marked on this inspired chart only a stage or two into the desert, and there it breaks abruptly off. But the way of the Lord does not stop where this track of it comes to an end. In a map of the city, you may see the road that leads to another city laid down for a little way beyond the wall, and then broken off abruptly in a field. The first stage is traced on the map to show that there is a road and in what direction it goes. But the road does not terminate in that field a few yards beyond the city walls. The road leads all the way to the capital, and passengers throng it from end to end, from day to day. It is thus that the book of the Acts marks our Lord's goings from his resurrection, only a stage or two forward as a specimen to show us the character of his rule. But his goings continue with his people still, and will continue until the last of the ransomed shall enter rest. So real quickly, what he's saying here is this, is that the road upon which uh, Jesus begins here with the gospel, with the, with the book of Acts, right, and continues off, and it seems to keep going, right, at the end of Acts, it kind of stops in a weird way. But the point is, is that Jesus Christ is still ministering and has been ministering for 2,000 years. And, 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 and that's what he's trying to highlight there, that Jesus is still at work. Jesus is still saving sinners. Jesus is still reigning from heaven and teaching us and leading us as his people. He's the same Christ that he was back then for us today. So he says this, this latter treatise does not begin precisely where the former treatise ends. By design and not by accident, the two overlap each other. The resurrection and ascension of Christ constitute the last portion of the gospel and the first portion of the Acts. The same facts appear at the close of one book and at the outset of another. Thus, when a bridge of two arches spans a deep river, both arches lean on one pillar that rises in the middle of the flood. In the midst of the gulf that separated God and man, and in the midst too of the tide of time, stood Jesus. On him the old dispensation rests, and on him the new. So what he's saying here is Jesus is like that, that he branched, Jesus um, connects both the Old Testament and the New Testament, and is in that gulf that separates God and man as well. He's the bridge. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the solid shore of a past eternity sprang the covenant of grace, but it bent over and bent down seeking support in the middle of the ages. It cannot go over from eternity to eternity in a single span, but here and among men there was nothing which could bear our side of the covenant, corresponding to God's side of it, leaning on eternal righteousness before time began. There was nothing here but a fathomless deep of sin and misery." Man's extremity was God's opportunity. Through this flood went the person and the work of Christ and became a foundation in humanity equal to and corresponding with the eternal righteousness which supported the arch at the other side. God with us stands up in the sea of humanity as a peer in midstream. Divine justice found a resting place on him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Thus the purpose of mercy, like the bow of promise, spanned the space from eternity down to the fullness of time, when the Son of God took our nature and wrought out a righteousness for us and in our stead. There stands the arch now, resting on the Father's eternal purpose on the one side and the Son's atoning death on the other. 
In the end of the gospel history, we found the first hemisphere of the divine dispensation terminating in Christ crucified and ascended. That part of the redemption was finished when Messiah died. Now, at the beginning of the Acts, we find the second arch springing where the first was finished. This second part begins, as the first ended, with the death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord. Resting there, it rises into the heavens and stretches away into the future. We lose sight of it, as we often lose sight of the rainbow in mid-heavens. But we know assuredly that it will traverse all the intervening space and lean secure on the continent of a coming eternity. From shore to shore, the way of mercy reaches across the bottomless gulf of fallen humanity. The last side of the first circle and the first side of the second resting both on the representative man, our brother and substitute, the second Adam, the Lord from heaven. Between the birth of Christ in Bethlehem and his ascension from the Mount of Olives intervened a period of nearly 34 years. This space, which according to the measurement of time is considerable, becomes a point when it is viewed from eternity. As vast worlds seem shining sparks when they lie deep in the infinitude. The life of Jesus in the world was the point of contact between the finite and the infinite, the meeting place between God and man. At that point, God touched us, and we were not consumed. We touched him, and yet lived. When the infinite and eternal would make himself known to us, he needs must fix upon a point in space, a moment in time. Somewhere on the surface of this inhabited world, and at some period in the course of the ages, the meeting must take place. In Judea, and about 1870 years ago, for us it would be about over 2,000 years ago, the Word, who was with God and was God, became flesh and dwelt among us. So what he's highlighting there is, is this whole fact that everything rests upon Christ. And I know that, um, that you know, you, you read that and you're like, wow, he's, he's a great writer. <laughs> and he was. Um, but Jesus Christ is the meeting place. I love this line where he says, listen to that. Listen to this one more time. He says this, the life of Jesus in the world. So Jesus's life, the, the gospel accounts that we read was the point of contact between the inf- between the finite us we are finite right and the infinite god the meeting place between god and man jesus christ is the meeting place between god and man this is a beautiful line at that point god touched us he took on our flesh and our blood he walked this sod he breathed this air and we were not consumed he says we touched him and yet lived we should view in awe of that shouldn't we that he touched us and we were not consumed our god is a holy fire and yet in christ he comes to us and we are not consumed we are sinners let the drama And the truth of this statement sink into our hearts, I think, guys. Um, Think about that. God touched us in Christ, and we were not consumed. We touched him and yet lived. It is an amazing thing to have a holy God who embraces sinners, but he only can do so because of the blood of his Son. 
And, and that should, that, that's Christianity right there, isn't it? That's what it is. That's what it is. So he says here, eventually at the very end of this section of introducing the book, he says this, the son of God had grasped a fallen world that he might save it. And now he lets that world go again. No, he is not really letting it go for he has taken hold of our nature and has borne it with him to his throne. He still holds fast this world. Ever tight is the line of love that binds him to all his own. Keen and sensitive as the nerves that unite head and members are those lines through which his love thrills down to his people. And their hope goes up to fasten on the anchor, sure and steadfast within the veil. So Jesus Christ came down and grasped this fallen world that he might save it. He came to us and grasped the world that he might save it. And it's not as if once he goes back up to heaven that he's letting it all go again, right? He is now gone back up for us to stand in God's presence to intercede for us. So that's what Jesus has done. He ascended and went on high. But now in the book of Acts, we read what he did whenever he got on high. And Acts 2 tells us that the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. Let's think a little bit about the Spirit at Pentecost because he poured out the Spirit just as he had said he would. What does this mean? What does this look like, right? We, we read here at the very beginning of chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is what Arnaud says about this section here. He says, the only event recorded in the interval of 10 days uh, before the, uh, hang on here, I'm, I'm, my, my writing here is a little messed up. The only event recorded, or my typing here, the copying that I did, the only event recorded in the interval of 10 days uh, before the Holy Spirit is the election of an apostle in the room of Judas, which occupies the latter half of the first chapter. The disciples waited at Jerusalem for the promise, and the promise was in due time fulfilled. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They waited for the Spirit as those who wait for the morning, as eager for its coming and as sure that it will come at, a, at the set time. Although they were sure of the event, they did not relax in the use of the means to procure it. Persevering prayer and oneness of heart were the forces by which they drew the blessing down. At the feast of the Passover, the lamb was slain. At the feast of Pentecost, the law was given. Coincident with the slaying of the lamb was the death of Christ. Coincident with the giving of the law was the descent of the Spirit. The long-continued, oft-repeated prophecy was at length fulfilled. Passovers and Pentecosts may now cease. Like the seed cast into the ground, they perish in the act of producing. As the sacrifice of Christ was the substantial fruit from the typical promise of the Passover, so the descent of the Spirit was the real and effective giving of the law to men. On the first Pentecost, the law was written on tablet tables of stone. On the last Pentecost came the Spirit, whose office it is to write that law on the living tables of the heart. Now, what Arnaud is getting at here is this 
idea that in Jew, in Judaism at the time, the, the Passover was associated with the exodus, with getting out of Egypt. It was their independence day, so to speak, right? And that's what happened with Jesus died on the Passover time, right? So Jesus is saying, you thought that exodus, that redemption, that independence, that freedom you got from Egypt was great whenever the lamb died back then. Just wait until you see what happens when I, the lamb of God, the capital L lamb of God die for the sins of the people. And I set you free from sin, death, hell, and the devil. I redeem you and set you free and make you a free man in Christ and, and save you from something so much worse than Egypt. Well, similarly, Pentecost had been associated by the Jews with the giving of the law, with the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. That's what they associated Pentecost with. Well, now, Arno here is pointing out that just as Jesus, his death and resurrection fulfilled Passover, so now the coming of the Spirit is the fulfillment of Pentecost and the writing of the law on the hearts of God's people. Remember the Old Testament, the law was written on stones. But now the law, as according to the new covenant's promise long ago, that I will write my law on their hearts. And this is fulfilled at Pentecost. And he's also there pointing out that these are kind, these are once for all unrepeatable events. We don't go back and re-crucify Jesus, do we? Well, similarly, we don't reenact Pentecost. The effects of the cross of Christ is a once-for-all thing that we enjoy today. Similarly, the giving of the Spirit was a once-for-all event that we experience, and we experience the fruits of it coming to us even today. The same Spirit it comes to us today and writes the law of God upon our hearts. He says here, suddenly there came, from, uh, came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Not a rushing mighty wind, but a sound that seemed like it. It pleased the Lord to manifest the descent of the Spirit by signs that appeal to the senses, that by the mouth of two witnesses the fact might be confirmed. The sense of hearing, this sound. The sense of sight, the tongues of fire. The fire was like cloven tongues. That is, it was distributed so that a tongue touched each, licking its head, his head like a flame. The tongue was not of fire, but like as of fire. There was the brightness, but not the burning. The tongues indicated speech, and the fire promised that the word spoken to spread the gospel would be burning words. At an earlier period, the Pharisees, tempting him, asked a sign from heaven. He refused. He would not give a sign to satisfy the curiosity of unbelievers. But when his own disciples are sad, he gives them, without being asked for it, a sign from heaven to cheer them, to prove that he is there and that all power is in his hands. When Joseph sent the royal chariots from Egypt to, to bring his famishing father into a land of plenty, the sight of the vehicles, with perhaps the royal arms emblazoned on their sides according to the fashion of Egyptian art, restored Jacob's fainting heart, convincing him that his son was alive and possessed of kingly power. In some such manner, this sign from heaven was fitted to confirm in the trembling hearts of those primitive disciples the struggling conviction of their faith. 
that Jesus, their elder brother, lived and reigned and remembered them with all his wanted love. So what he's saying here, and this is really beautiful, is that the sound and the fire, the sound of mighty winds and the tongues of, as of fire, were meant to be signs to remind these early disciples that, yes, the Jesus that went to heaven is the Jesus that, that now has done this to you and given you the Spirit just as he promised, that he is going to clothe you with power from on high. And uh, he compares it to Joseph there. Uh, the next part there, though, is all, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. He says this, Hitherto communications of the Spirit have been made in smaller measure as foretastes of the promised blessing. Man, by, his, by the fall, lost communion with God. He became flesh, not only in the sense of being human, but in the sense of being destitute of the Spirit, without God in the world. Through the covenant by which Christ undertook redemption, Glimpses of the Spirit were vouchsafed in the earlier times, so that the world was not left in complete darkness. The Spirit of God did strive with man in the evil days both before and after the flood. But it was only when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us that the Spirit in fullness returned to the earth. In the second Adam, the Spirit dwelt without measure. He had no sin, and when he became flesh, the Spirit was restored to humanity. When he ascended up on high, he retained a connection with his disciples on earth through their faith. And by that thread, the divine spirit thrilled down from the head into the members. What a wonderful uh, image that is. Notice the, the idea, man, by our lost communion with God in the fall, we lost our relationship with God in Adam. We sinned and also we lost the spirit. Um. Well, the Spirit of God was active at creation, and the same Spirit that was active was active with Adam. But then whenever we sinned, uh, we lost the Spirit's communion. But then, because of the promise, God in the Old Testament did not withdraw the Spirit completely, but the Spirit came even to uh, empower certain key individuals, right? And he was active in the Old Testament. But then whenever Christ came, the Spirit was poured out and, and came down to the people of God in a new abundance. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They, the, they, Jesus Christ is the second Adam in whom the Spirit dwells without measure. And what the first Adam lost, the Holy Spirit, the second Adam regained for us and pours upon us the Holy Spirit. So that the spirit that should have been given to us and that we lost as children of Adam is now given to us as the children of God, as those who are now found in Christ, the second Adam. It's a powerful image, isn't it? I think about that whole aspect of what we lost in Adam, the spirit we regained in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit himself. So the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, and this is the great news of the book of Acts. God closed the disciples with power, with the person of the Spirit. God the Spirit is at work now in the church. And what does he empower his, his apostles to do right away in Acts 2? They preach. They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
They preach about him. Um, he, he says, remember, they think these guys are drunk, and, and, and Peter stands up. Peter, who before had been so cowardly and denied his Lord three times, now stands up, empowered by the Spirit that the second Adam has poured upon a new humanity, his church. And he stands up before these people and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ to them and tells them how Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. You crucified him, but God raised him uh, from, from the dead. And here, upon this preaching, where he says here, eventually, doesn't he, uh, um, uh, Peter says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Arnaud says this about the apostles preaching here. He says, here the preaching of a completed redemption began. Note that real quick. Remember that. A completed redemption. This is the first sermon that could preach that. Of course, Jesus right after said that to, his, uh, to the apostles that he had accomplished it. But in the Old Testament, it was always the preaching of a redemption that was not completed yet, but a redemption to come, a redemption that would happen in the future that they were looking forward to. But now at Pentecost, with the giving of the Spirit to the new humanity, to the church of Jesus Christ, the preaching of a completed redemption begins. Notice that real quick, that little line there. That don't, those, are, those words are so powerful, I think. Here the preaching of a completed redemption began, Arno writes. This is the first sermon. Since that time, the preaching of Christ has exercised a great power on the world, and it must continue until, like the sun, the light of the gospel shall compass the earth. In this first specimen of preaching, peculiar honor is given to the scriptures of the Old Testament. The preacher plants his foot on the prophets and the psalms as on a sure and everlasting foundation. All is grounded on the inspired word. Further, this earliest example of a sermon is in the main a narrative. The apostles considered themselves to be the witnesses of a fact to the world. They depended neither upon argument nor rhetoric. They told the story and looked to God for the power. At a subsequent period, even in, ap and even in apostolic times, it became necessary to intermingle doctrinal discussion with the narrative of facts. But at the outset, it was testimony merely, and it continued to be testimony mainly to the last. Even now, the essence of preaching is the statement of a fact. When the evangelist Luke, at the commencement of his second book, takes a retrospective view of his earlier work, he calls it a record of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. The doing goes before the teaching and lies under it to sustain as the foundation sustains the superstructure. The teaching is secondary and subordinate to the acting. The teaching is of use only insofar as it explains and applies the action. It is what Jesus did that saves, and preaching is valuable 
only in as far as it explains and enforces his saving work. That is so important. That is so important. And I know that uh, what Jesus did saves his actions, that what he did for us, his dying, his rising, his ascending, those are the things that save us, his perfect life. We are saved because of what Jesus did. Salvation is not a command. Do this. It's, salvation is not a possibility that might happen. It is not something potential that could happen or potentially might happen in your life. Salvation is an accomplished fact that Jesus did. It is a completed thing that he did, and his preaching is an an interpretation and an offer of all that he did being given to us, and we receive it by faith. He continues here as well, this last part. He says, another feature of Peter's sermon, as we read here in Acts 2, is that it presents Christ as the fulfillment of Scripture. The disciple had learned this from his master. When Jesus had read the text from Isaiah in the synagogue of Nazareth, uh, Luke 4, 16-22, he closed the book and gave it again to the attendant, and presenting himself to the audience, he said, This day is the Scripture fulfilled in your ears. It is only when we read them in the light of Christ risen that the prophets and the Psalms can be understood. It is when the sun rises and shines on them that all the gems scattered over the ground and partly embedded in the earth begin to sparkle like stars in the sky. So Peter here preaches what Jesus did, the facts. He bears witness to this fact. And he also says it all fulfilled what the Old Testament said would happen. That's really Peter's preaching. He's very convicting as well. He convicts them, says, you guys crucified him, and calls them to repentance and faith. Well, many people believe, and and then eventually we read about the early church's life. In chapter 3, then, we begin to see Peter, they, they heal a lame beggar, and then they are, Peter here is preaching. And eventually they're brought to the council before it. But then um, we read here, beginning in verse uh, 7 of chapter 4, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, Arno has this section here, add to your faith, courage. And he ha- has this uh, that he says about this, this really remarkable section. He says this, The most remarkable feature in the three successive examples of Peter's preaching is the indictment charged directly home upon the consciences of his hearers that they were the crucifiers of Christ. And what Arnaud is pointing out here is that Peter preaches three times here in the first three chapters. He preaches in chapter 2. He preaches 
or I guess in the first four chapters. Um, in chapter two, he preaches. In chapter three, he preaches. And in chapter four, here he preaches. So these three consecutive sermons that come from the lips of the apostle Peter. And he says that in each of them, he charges them and calls them and says that they themselves were the crucifiers of Christ. Uh, Arno continues here. He found that this sharp method was successful the first time and therefore repeated it. It was thus that Nelson's victories were won. If you know anything about naval history, you know he's talking about Horatio Nelson, uh, the the, uh, uh, great English naval hero. Uh, It was thus that Nelson's victories were won. When the enemy's ships were extended in a line before him, he formed his into column, pierced their line with its points, and fought them from the other side. Finding this method successful, he always followed it. The boldness of Peter as a witness here is amply accounted for by the intimation that he was full of the Holy Ghost. The master had fulfilled his promise, and the servant was thereby enabled to execute his task. Cause and effect are as clearly connected in this experience as in the process of nature. Wanting the Spirit, in other words, without the Spirit, Peter was not able to bear witness for the Lord in presence of a serving maid. With the Spirit, Peter held his judges fascinated by the glance of his eye while he pierced them with his word. This apostle experienced the truth of Paul's paradox on both of its sides. When I am weak, then am I strong. And when I am strong, then I am weak. Peter interprets the prophecy about the stone rejected by the builders as Jesus had interpreted it in his hearing. He applied it directly to the Messiah, whom the Jewish priests had slain, and added, Neither is there salvation in any other. There has been at various periods much foolish disputation on the question whether there can be any salvation beyond the pale of the Pope's church. Away with all these profane babblings. It is not out of this church or of, out of that. It is out of Christ there is no salvation. This is the only limit that God has set. It is blasphemous as well as foolish to suggest any other. Behold the arraigned and accused man. He arraigns and accuses his judges. He's talking about Peter here, right? He's the one who's been called in and who's accused, but it is Peter who who stands before the judges and accuses them. He arraigns and accuses his judges, convicts his judges. Nay, more, he stands at their bar and offers them mercy. He proclaims to them the free pardon of their sin through the blood of Jesus, whom they crucified. He warns them with tenderness and calmness, which must have struck terror into their hearts, that unless they accept mercy by this channel, no mercy will ever reach them. This name, this manifestation of God, is given among men. It comes from heaven to earth. It comes to save, not to destroy, but it will not save those who reject it. By this name, we must be saved or perish." Great stuff again. It is not outside of the church that there is no salvation, but it is outside of Christ. Outside of the name of Jesus, there is no salvation in no one else. And here Peter is calling these people, these men, and you can imagine the irony here. They are supposed to be the judges, and he is supposed to be the one who's accused coming in before them. And, and yet, 
it, he Peter here flips the flips the roles and says, "Listen, you are the ones who are guilty here, but listen, there is mercy and pardon. You can be granted amnesty for your sins and pardon because of the blood of Christ, the one that you killed. Though you're you're guilty of it, but He's willing to forgive you. That is the gospel, isn't it? That we preach." A free grace and calling men and women as well, though, and children and old and young, uh, to to the to the to the court of God, and to show them that by works of the law, no one will be acceptable in God's sight, and yet God has shown His righteousness apart from the law. In sending his son, he put forward his son so that all who receive him and accept him and rest upon him as the sure and mighty rock of salvation that he is, that they will be saved. So we have here um, this amazing thing that happens. We have uh, later on um, their prayer, which is a beautiful prayer for boldness afterwards. Um, We see the judgment that comes upon the church or comes upon Ananias and Sapphira, I should say, uh, because of their sin. Uh, The apostles arrested again in chapter five. But then we have this interesting thing that happens in the early church in Jerusalem in chapter six. We read uh, beginning of chapter six, Um, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, those are Greek-speaking Jews, so Jews that spoke Greek, um, you might know that there was there would have been differences in Jews even, right? There were some Jews who were probably more comfortable in, in Aramaic, which is what people in Palestine would have probably spoke more. And then there were Greek-speaking Jews who, uh, who, who spoke Greek. They were more at home in that. And so there were both, both groups were, were represented in the, in the uh, church in Jerusalem. It says a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And we read that they, uh, they set these men aside. Among them was, was Stephen. And so this has often been understood to be the beginnings, the um, institution of the office of deacon, of deacon um, in the, the church to serve tables. This is certain men who are picked out to assist at this time, the apostles who were called to preach and teach. They were called to the ministry of prayer and of word, um, like modern day pastors are. We don't, we don't have authority over all churches like the apostles did, but we are in, we have been called by God. Pastors have local church pastors have been called upon by God to uh, the ministry of prayer and the word. Uh, but alongside this also comes a ministry of, of mercy, a ministry of care in the church um, that these deacons uh, carried out here in the Jerusalem church. And both of these things have continued on through uh, churches um, all over the world. And so Arnaud has this to say about the, uh, the role of deacons, and this is the last reading that we'll have for, for today. He says this, as, as the disciple, as it, um, you know, sometimes my copying here is not good. Um, suffice it to say, the disciples were multiplied. We gather here, he says, that the bulk of the society had something to do with the troubles that arose. 
In a large community, certain disorders are apt to occur from which a smaller body may be comparatively free. It was necessary to institute new offices to meet new demands. But beside the increased numbers, we must also take into account the liberal provision for the poor that had been made through the generosity of a fresh young faith. It is remarkable that both the internal disorders, the hypocrisy recorded in chapter 5, and the murmurings recorded in chapter 6, sprang directly from the open-handed charity exercised towards the poor. In that rich soil, several rank weeds suddenly sprang up to test and exercise the wisdom and faithfulness of the infant church. The falsehood of Ananias and the discontent of the Hellenist grew in different compartments of the same field. One root of bitterness grew in the givers and another in the receivers. Both are recorded that Christians in subsequent ages might be warned on either side. From the beginning hitherto, the church has been exposed to manifold dangers at the point where she comes into necessary contact with the world. How many sorrows and how many sins have sprung up with gifts, with money? Contributions are necessary. Without them, even the faith of disciples would often be crippled in its action for want of instruments. But the contributions, especially in large bodies and in an artificial state of society, afford a cover in which the adversary conceals himself when he seeks to devour. Both givers and receivers need to be watchful. No church on earth can be free altogether from danger here. Our prayer should be not that we should be taken out of the world, but that we should be kept from the evil. Great liberality is a beautiful fruit of faith. Yet in this sweet fruit, a worm may gnaw. Hitherto, the apostles had personally superintended the distribution of the gifts. It was not possible that they should take charge of every detail. The work must have been, to a large extent, delegated. It was natural that Jews of Palestine should in the first instance be employed. These would be best acquainted with their own countrymen, and so it might happen that the native poor were at first better provided for than the poor Jews who had been born in Greek countries and understood only the Greek tongue. How far the grievance was real, and how far sentimental, we do not know. We know only the fact that the Hellenists complained of undue partiality in favor of the Palestinians. Murmurings are dangerous to the peace and prosperity of the Christian society. As soon as the apostles heard of the complaint, they took effective measures to satisfy and so remove it. They surveyed the case and promptly formed their resolution. At a glance, they perceived that if the same method should be continued, they must personally attend more minutely to the details of the distribution. But this would, call, but this would distract their attention and occupy their time with secondary affairs to the manifest detriment of their chief work, the ministry of the word. A new order of officials must be appointed to superintend this business. The apostles, in the first instance, made up their own minds as to the kind of office that should be instituted and the qualifications which the officials should possess. Then they submitted their proposal with reasons to the brethren. Thereupon the whole multitude accepted the proposal and at once proceeded to choose fit and proper persons for this specific work. Having elected the seven deacons, they presented them to the apostles. The apostles on their part accepted the choice of the people and ordained the deacons by prayer and the imposition of hands. In making the proposal regarding the institution of the deacons, the apostles state briefly the grounds of their decision. These grounds are permanently true and precious. 
the foundation so laid will bear more than the particular weight then and there imposed. If the apostles declined to administer charitable gifts to poor disciples, lest it should interfere with their spiritual ministry, many other things, if they had lived in our days, they would have declined for the same reason. It becomes all Christian ministers to walk humbly in the apostles' footsteps, rather than to set up an exclusive claim on some transcendental ground to be accounted their successors. It is eminently worthy of regard that although the specific work to which the deacons were in the first instance were in the first instance called was the distribution of money and other material gifts, a necessary qualification for office is that they be full of the Holy Ghost. Grace in large measure is announced to be a necessary requisite in one who shall handle the outward things of the house of God. It is on this border belt, where the church and the world meet, that corruption is apt to spring. And it is especially important that those who are called to duty in that sphere should be eminently spiritual men. I think that's a very helpful uh, discussion real quick about a couple of things. The, the, the givers and the receivers thing, that, that is very insightful, isn't it? That on the one hand, we have um, the givers like Barnabas, and we've got bad examples of what can happen with givers in Ananias and Sapphira. But then we also have an instance of complaining in chapter the beginning of chapter 6 by those who are receivers. And so he points out here that there was so much giving going on and good giving. And oftentimes good things are going on. But actually, as he points out, we have to be careful still because the devil can still use these instances um, for bad purposes, as we see with Ananias and Sapphira or with the complaints that were going on. And we don't know for certain whether or not they were valid or not. But the point is, is you know, oftentimes we hear, we should go back to the early church. Well, the early church in Jerusalem, the first, you know, I mean, if we're Baptist churches, we can say this, I guess. The first Baptist church of Jerusalem, um, they had problems, didn't they? They had some big problems. People, I mean, I mean, let's, let's be honest. They had some people there, a couple, a married couple who lied to the Lord and they died. And um, they were judged. And, and, and there was really good things going on. People were having things in common. They were praying together. There was people coming to know the Lord. And yet at the same time, in the midst of so much good going on, they were suffering persecution. And they were also people were being arrested. They were people in the church were having issues. So the point is, is there is no perfect church, is there? Except for the church Um that has been bought by Jesus's blood and we will be perfect with him in heaven. But um, we, we should not be surprised when trials and tribulations come into the church in the, in, in the, the 21st century, because uh, for uh, as long as sin has been in the world and God has had a people in this world, there have been problems for those people uh, facing from within and from without. And also he points out, and I think it's a very important reminder to us, that the deacons were called to be full of the Holy Spirit. Being a deacon is a high office. It is a great calling, and it's a calling to service, just as the calling of a pastor is a calling to service, a calling to wash the feet of people. Um, that is also the calling of a deacon. 
a deacon is called to serve uh, the people of God and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they are to be full of the Spirit as we see. That's what they were called to be. Um, and as he points out, it's a necessary qualification because the, the men who serve as deacons on behalf of the people of God and who serve the Lord in this particular way are those where, as he says, corruption can spring up just as corruption can spring up with pastors or with deacons um, and in any of our hearts. It's just a good reminder to us, isn't it? And, and to, to appreciate the deacons that we have in our church, to appreciate the calling that these men have to serve in this capacity. Being a deacon is a high and holy calling, and it's a serious calling, and it's a good calling. We are so grateful for the deacons in our church. We're so thankful that God gave us this office of, of men who are, who are to serve the church, to take care of these needs. And, um, and I think it's just a wonderful reminder to us of the great gift that the office of deacon is to us and of the deacons that we have here at Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, uh, for which we're grateful. And uh, we're grateful for the office, and we're grateful that God has, has uses those men to bless and serve uh, the Church of Jesus Christ here and and around the world. So I, I hope this has been in, in encouraging for you as we've we've launched into the Book of Acts. Um, uh, yeah, we'll begin with Stephen uh, next week, his sermon, which really begins leading to uh, the uh, conversion of uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus. Um, who's involved there. And we will see what Stephen has to say next week as we continue reading through the New Testament. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week and take care and God bless.